Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 128 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, that is Gavin, and that is Fia. And friends, have you ever thought someone was pregnant when they weren't actually pregnant? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, apparently oh you my. did, Mike. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It was me. Mike thought no. I was pregnant. Not my wife, me personally. Yeah. <laughs> there was a... Um, a guy I work with who uh, was my 10th grade global history teacher um, thought that somebody in our department was pregnant. This is many years ago. And like, we're just casually like, oh, yeah, like, how's the baby doing? Like, you oh, know, God. when's it due? And she was like, not pregnant, dude. <gasps> that that was, never goes well. It was the most well. awkward thing in the world. I've, you know? I've learned that mistake from other people doing that, like, while <sighs> I've been around. And I'm like, yep. unless somebody gives up that information, I will never, okay. ever. Nope. Wait. Did you never say, say that. <laughs> ever bring it up. No. Did I tell you guys about my Halloween costume this year? No, I no. have no idea where this is going. So Andy and I went as a couple's costume. We were ice, ice baby. We were two bags of ice. That's so cute. And a little baby like doll. Um, but well done. Thank you. We went to the bar and I guess... Oh. This, this couple next to us kind of got confused about our costume, and then she asked, <laughs> like, oh, well, if you don't mind me asking, when are you doing? I'm like, no, 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 I am not. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I apparently it is also something people will dress up as, as, like, a coming out, you're pregnant uh... costume. Which I did not know. And you didn't find that out until uh, a little too late? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have known that, no. I wouldn't either. So. See, this is the stuff that we don't know (laughs) being three childless uh, friends here. Yeah. We don't know how marriage or uh, pregnancy announcements work. What are children? Yeah, right. (laughs) I hope I never find out. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, welcome, y'all. Uh, yeah, today we Happy have new a year. Uh, awesome. yes, Happy New Year. This is the first episode of the New Year. Uh, we're we're pretty excited about it. It's a it's a leap year. Uh, it's a it's an election year, which I'm less excited about than it being a leap year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going downhill already, Kevin. Yep, going downhill already. The Iowa <laughs> caucuses should have just happened yesterday. <laughs> um, congrats and/or I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, so. Anyway, moving right along, uh, it's gonna yeah. it's gonna be a good year. It's gonna be a good year just for for life and 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 stuff and and uh, the podcast. I can feel it. So um, I'm gonna try to use my uh, predicting the future powers when recording for the podcast for good this time. Um, <laughs> Please. <laughs> so yeah, it's gonna be a good year. Uh, we're starting off with a really interesting episode, in my opinion. Um, about ontogeny, which will, uh, if you've never heard that word before, I don't blame you. Uh, but it's basically the fancy science word for growing up. Uh, we're going to learn all about that and uh, some of the neat different ways that different groups of life grow up. But before that, do we have some housekeeping? Of course we do. You know, uh, don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to us on and to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube give us feedback about the show and any future topics you would like here on the podcast. If you would like to be a guest on the show, which we would love some new guests this year, 
uh, yeah. please fill out the guest form, which all that stuff can be found in the show notes. So, Has anybody ever filled out the guest form? <laughs> I did. Not to... Yes, Fia did. I did. Back when she was number one fan of the pod, Fia, and not co-host Fia? Yeah. Right. Wow. Long time ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, you've been a co-host longer than you were number one fan of the pod, right? Um, I don't know. I don't, yeah, we'd have to look at that. I don't quite remember. Maybe time-wise, definitely not number of episodes since we started doing every other week instead of every week. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what is next episode's topic, Gavin? So, in order to help myself be a little more structured in planning episodes, I would like to start doing some kind of rotation, similar to what we do where it's like every... You know, five episodes, it's either a mic or a fee episode. I'd like to get some kind of rotation for that for myself. So I'm going to try to find uh, a, a person where it's like every episode that ends in eight is going to be about a person. Um, I don't know how successful I'm going to be at that, particularly because in the past when we've done episodes about people important to geology or paleontology, they've all been horrible racists. Um, mm. So that is my challenge for next episode. And I have it right here in the notes. Uh, person important to geology who wasn't super into eugenics. Parentheses. <laughs> challenge. Impossible. Um, so yeah. Going to be about some person. And I'm going to do my best to not have them be terrible. And part of the whole ethos, ethos of the show is that like, you know, they have to be dead. Right. Which generally means we're going back a long time ago. So this, I mean, and that's back when eugenics was cool. So like. Well. This could be a challenge. <laughs> I'd argue it was never cool. Uh, I concur. Well, it's because you're alive right now, but like when, when it was right the now, norm. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that's that's gonna be next episode. Um, with that, Mike, do you have a uh, today in history? Yeah. So, um, couple things happened today in history. I got uh, five things today in history. Um, most recently, five, five things. Wow. I got five things today okay. in history. All right. Big week. Um, uh, big, I mean, in fact, there's even more stuff going on. Uh, thing number one, I got my braces on January 10th, <laughs> um, 2008. Uh, so I got my braces on. Um, second thing, my, uh, cousin Olivia was born. Third cool. thing. Her older sister, my cousin, Haley, was born. Both born on the same day, just a couple years apart. Wow. Yeah. Then uh, we're bringing it all the way back to something I'm going to be teaching about. Um, as you hear this yesterday, as we're recording it, it's tomorrow. Um, but the company Standard Oil was founded in 1870 by John Rockefeller. Okay. Um, going to be teaching about that uh, next class. Some captains of industry or robber barons, depending on your perspective. Spoiler alert, mostly robber barons. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in 1776, and I'll be teaching about this with my seventh graders on Friday, uh, Common Sense was published by Thomas Paine, oh. telling the American colonists, like, hey, uh, do your own thing. Yeah. Leave the king alone. So January 10th, big day. There's other stuff here. Like, apparently, William Henry Harrison was appointed governor of the Indiana Territory. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> Like, this is kind of when all of a sudden things start, uh, wow. like, after the holiday break. You know, the new year, people, new you know, year, it takes them a couple days to get everything. going. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess that makes sudden, sense. Yeah, all of a sudden, like, it's a big day. Well, happy um, birthday to 
Mike's cousins, and also happy birthday to my boyfriend Andy. Oh wow! Wow, see, this is incredible. It this is. is incredible stuff right here. Big day, January tenth, everybody. Big day. We should uh, we should make it hot. It should be like a I wish you were dead day, like officially <laughs> January tenth every year. Love okay. it. Happy I need someone to remember day. that. Yeah, I was gonna say we'll have to yeah. put that in the doc because I certainly yeah. will not well, remember that. I'll probably remember because it's Andy's birthday. What should we do for hmm. for like? How do we celebrate? Like, do we kill somebody? In no. honor of I wish you were dead day. No. Do we? Um, like, I don't know. This is. Oh, we got another thing. In 1967, a man named Edward W. Brooke takes his seat um, in the Senate as the first popularly elected black man. Um, oh. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible stuff going on on January 10th. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people might not know this. Senators originally were not elected. Is, isn't that right? Correct. They were appointed by state legislatures. Hmm. Yeah, fun fact. In 1989, Wayne Gretzky becomes the NHL's all-time leading scorer. Wow. What a day. In 1990, we have the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh my god stop me someone stop me now yep. i'm gonna keep going yeah. Right. let's uh Today. let's yeah let's let's talk about some uh seagrass corner yeah so um i've been talking to you guys about different kinds of seagrass in 1999 <laughs> fat boy slim released praise you which is big for us that is that is very big in our friend group uh we have, right, i'm we done Several friends I'm done. who post that anytime it's somebody's birthday. They'll oh, like share yeah. the YouTube I'm not saying it's a great song. Day. I'm saying it's important to us. That's correct. Yeah. It is true. It is true. Uh, all right. Something about uh, grass or something. I don't even know. <laughs> Fia, start talking. All right. I've been talking about grass. We're going to switch it up because Gavin texted me and asked me a question about bivalves earlier. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll just yeah. do a bivalve. So um, I'm going to talk today about the Florida Bay Scallop. Agropectin iridians, probably is how you say it, I don't know. But it's a scallop, it's a bivalve. It's found in shallow seagrass beds in the coastal areas of Florida. So they really like that seagrass habitat. Um, at one time these, and these scallops, they're not, um, they're not your typical scallops that you would order at like a fancy restaurant. They're not like the big, those are called um, okay. dive scallops. These bay scallops are probably like the meat would be the size of like a quarter. Oh, all right. Like they're yeah. very small scallops, but like that's just how, that's, they don't really get that big, this species. Sure. So they used to be found all over like um, the coast of Florida from West Palm Beach to Pensacola, but there's been uh, some big wipeouts of the population, so now populations can only be found in special locations along Florida's west coast only, um, particularly um, in the Big Bend region um, and in areas kind of near the armpit of the uh, of Florida. If, Isn't if that most I'm of saying. Florida though? The armpit. An armpit. <laughs> okay. It's funny because it's Florida and their governor's a bad man. That's correct. That I concur. But anywho, sorry. <laughs> if you think about the physical structure, yes, and geography, right, of Florida, the armpit of Florida's shape—that is where I'm talking about. Um, and this 
uh, population is actually a really important recreationally harvested population in Florida. So during certain times of the years, um, anybody can just go out and snorkel in the seagrass and catch these bay scallops. And it's it's a huge this um, this area that we're talking about is probably only an hour or two away from where I work um, or where I go to school. And so it's um, a pretty big deal. A lot of people will drive out to on opening day and they'll go, I think you get like a, a bucket limit or something, um, some sort of X amount of gallons bucket that you get to fill up um, per person. And then people will go home and cook all their little scallops or freeze them. I've heard somebody made like a scallop pizza with them, which I oh. keep thinking about all the time. I, I want it so badly. <laughs> it sounds delicious. Um, but yeah, then the fun fact about scallops is that they have blue eyes, a lot of blue eyes that line the perimeter of their shell when they open up. So if you see a scallop it'll, and it opens up, all those little blue dots are its eyeballs. Uh, I actually have a little bit of an anecdote about this. Sure. Um, I, I'd be surprised if Mike were, because it's not in his sort of wheelhouse. But Fia, are you familiar... That's offensive. Uh, maybe. Uh, are you familiar with the Facebook group Wild Green Memes for Ecological Fiends? Yeah. Oh, I'm absolutely. You have. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Yeah. Many oh my times. God, we have. You're right, Mike. Mike, I am so sorry. So you. Yes, that is absolutely my bad, Mike. Uh, I I profusely apologize. Anyway, um, I follow them. What's up? So yeah, this is they're an incredible start to an episode. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh. So we uh that that group goes through a lot of trends that last like a day and a half each, and then it moves on to the next one. Um, mm -hmm. But for a while, it was something about f why Fruit Loops are so popular. Um, and the like main admin and creator of the group posted a meme that said, uh, scallops have a thousand eyes, but can they see why uh, kids love Fruit Loops or something like that? But he spelled it wrong. And it just said, but can they why? Not see why. So then, but can they why? became a very long-running meme about scallops. Um, that's not going to be funny to almost anybody, but I felt the... Certainly the, not to me. ...the strong <laughs> urge to say it. Um, nice. So, if you, if you peruse wild green memes for ecological fiends, eventually you will come across somebody saying, but can they why? Uh, and now you'll know. For the scallops. About anything, realistically. <laughs> yeah. Um, my last thought I'll leave you with is that if you would like to have a good laugh or just see something silly, go YouTube a scallop swimming because it is probably the cutest thing ever in my opinion. And it just looks absolutely cute. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's, they're, they're, I think the only group of bivalves that can like swim for the most yeah, part. I'm pretty sure. And so they're. They do it exactly how you'd think, but it looks way sillier than you would think it would. Yeah. They just flap their shells together, more or less. Yeah. I feel like they do a pretty accurate job of, like, showing that on the Spongebob episode with the baby scallop. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking of. <laughs> yeah. So. Or just cool. watch Spongebob. Yes, that too.
All right. That's all I got. Awesome. Thank you for that, Fia, and for the the marvelous establishment of uh, I Wish You Were Dead Day from Mike. Yes. Also, on this day in 2018, Jeff Bezos became the second person worth $100 million. Cool. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, for all the good cool. you've done with those $100 billion. Uh, <laughs> that was sarcasm. Anyway. So. <clears throat> couldn't tell. <clears throat> uh, on to the, uh, the main topic of today's episode, ontogeny. Which, as I mentioned, is sort of the fancy science word for growing up. Um, I decided to talk about this, uh, today because there's been some controversy recently around some fossils, uh, that may or may not be juvenile Tyrannosaurus Rex fossils, or they might be a different species altogether. Uh, and in paleontology, those two things, whether it's a different species or just, uh, an immature juvenile one can be really hard to tell the difference between, um, and so this is not like a new controversy, but a new paper got published about this particular handful of uh, fossil specimens, uh, which is why it was kind of front of mind. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that more toward the end once we talk about the paleontology aspect of ontogeny. But uh, first, we'll talk about it sort of in the modern day. And as I'm sure all of us can attest to, uh, growing up is pretty darn weird. Yeah. It's, it's just not a fun time. For most organisms, I would say. Um, But ontogeny describes the developmental changes in an organism. And this is the part that I didn't quite know beforehand, because being a paleontologist, we also talk about it in things that we can observe in fossils. But ontogeny also includes, basically from the moment an egg is fertilized, all the way through until it is a fully matured adult. So we've mostly talked about it in, you know, things that preserve. Fertilized eggs, at least like the cells of the fertilized eggs, don't preserve essentially ever. Um, So we would mostly refer to it about like, you know, from the time an animal is born or hatched until they're an adult. Uh, But it also includes, and in fact mostly includes, uh, most of the research around it talks about the uh, like embryonic development of animals. Uh, and if you look up almost anything about ontogeny, most of what you'll find is stuff about, uh, like embryonic development, especially for vertebrates in particular. Uh, so we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about those different stages. Uh, but there's so much to cover in, uh, developmental biology. That could be an entire, not a, not an entire episode, an entire podcast by itself. Yeah. And I'm sure that there is one. Um, and there, there's entire college courses that also don't cover everything that are just about developmental biology. Uh, that's how much we understand about, you know, the whole process that goes from fertilized egg to an animal being born. So there's plenty of resources online to talk about that kind of thing. Uh, but we're just going to barely scratch the surface. So now in this moment, we're going to be talking about where babies come from. Get ready. Um, Fia, you know something about that, don't you? No, I don't. Stop trying to hint that I'm pregnant because I'm not <laughs> pregnant. Uh, all right. Step one. Uh, a sperm reaches an egg and 
burrows its way through sort of the outer layer of goop around the egg cell and fertilizes it. They combine their genetic... Gavin, how does that happen? Of, depends on what kind of animal you're looking at. It varies Human. wildly. Uh, and And plants as well. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. We're only here to talk about the cellular stuff. So, uh, yes, once they combine their genetic material, it's no longer called an egg and a sperm. It is a zygote. That is the, the term for a fertilized egg. After that, it goes through a process called cleavage, which is when the cell separates, just like a regular cell would. Um, so it basically goes from one cell to two, to four, to eight, so on. Uh, after a certain amount of time, this varies, again, very widely between different species. Uh, physically larger species, this next step takes a little longer because you need more cells. But then it, it basically becomes a sort of hollow sphere of cells called a blastula. And so far, those three steps, the fertilization, cleavage, and then forming a blastula, all of those are more or less the same steps for basically any animal more complex than jellies and corals. Uh, especially corals reproduce a lot by budding. So they, they do have sexual, sexual reproduction, but uh, not as commonly. And I believe even in jellies, this, those steps are still fairly similar. This next part is where we get a little bit of variation from group to group. Uh, once that hollow sphere of cells gets big enough, it does this thing called gastrulation. And basically, so imagine you have a hollow sphere of like non-hardened clay. Like you're, make, you're taking a pottery class or something, you have just a hollow sphere of clay. You take your finger and you push in on one side of the sphere. So it's now sort of like a, a semi-sphere that is now like double layered. Then you sort of mold the clay back into a sphere, but leaving open a hole where you pushed your finger through, if that kind of makes sense. Maybe. Or, so basically, it, it sort of collapses in on itself at one particular point. And now, mm -hmm. instead of being sort of that one layer of cells for the, the initial sphere, it's now two layers but it now has like a, a a hole going from the outside into the, like the internal cavity, basically. I'm thinking like a donut kind of shape right now. Am I am I off base? Um, the the hole doesn't go all the way through. Okay. Like a C. So. Um. Like the letter did, C. Right, but it's like a three dimensional. Yeah, yeah. If you were to take a cross section, like a yeah, it would look like. C. Right. Um, and so that hole formed by sort of that initial, that collapse, that sort of folding in on itself, what that hole mm -hmm. becomes varies based on what group of animals you're looking at. In most animals, that becomes the mouth. So that's pretty much all invertebrates. That becomes the mouth. In echinoderms and vertebrates, that becomes the anus. Huh. Yeah. That... So the anus forms like one of is one of the first things it forms? Yep. In, in echinoderms which, right, in echinoderms, which are starfish, uh, sea urchins, sand dollars, uh, and 
vertebrates. So that is sort of the, the fundamental split between at least like, uh, quote unquote, more advanced animals is which forms first, your mouth or your anus. And in insects, uh, crustaceans, pretty much all worms and stuff like that, bivalves, other uh, mollusks, uh, the, the mouth forms from that hole in vertebrates and in echinoderms, that becomes the anus. Cool. So at this point, it's basically just a double, or I guess triple layered, because that, that folding in also sort of pushes some cells to form three layers now, with the, the hole leading into sort of the central cavity. Once that's done, there are three layers of cells. So there's the ectoderm on the outside of this ball, basically. The endoderm in the middle, so that's sort of the inside part of where the hole leads to in the middle now. And then between those two is the me uh, mesoderm. So ecto outside, meso in the middle, endo on the inside. And this next part is going to be very vertebrate-centric because that's what I know. Uh, I'm sure it's similar to, in a lot of invertebrates and where I was able to find some stuff, uh, details about it, I'll mention that. But for the most part, this is going to be how it works in the ectoderm, the outside layer, becomes the skin, the pigment cells. So in things that, uh, you know, have colored fur or colored skin, the specialized cells that make up those pigments are also in that layer, as well as the uh, nerves from that, that form the brain and the spinal cord also come from this outer layer uh, of, uh, of cells. And in, with invertebrates, most of them don't have a brain per se, but their nerves, their, their main nervous system comes from this outer layer as well. The mesoderm the uh, middle layer becomes most of your non-digestive organs. So this is like your kidneys, your muscles, your bones, reproductive organs, your heart, your blood vessels, stuff like that. Again, unsure about some of the invertebrate equivalents because their organs work fundamentally so differently than vertebrates. But again, anything that's not digestive in nature probably comes from this layer. And then finally, the uh, last layer, the endoderm, uh, forms the digestive tract, including things like the liver and the pancreas, and also the lungs. Uh, that kind of makes sense. The, the lungs seem like it's a little out of left field, but if you look at a fish where its swim bladder is, mm. it's sort of like a, a bubble off of their digestive tract, and it's thought that that's where terrestrial animals, terrestrial vertebrates anyway, that's where their lungs likely came from, is uh, adapted from that swim bladder. So it makes sense that they would come from the same developmental cells. Uh, and with invertebrates, I have absolutely no idea if this forms their breathing apparatus. I know for sure it doesn't in insects, because they don't have lungs. They just have holes in their exoskeleton that lets air just passively go into their body. Um, but Wait, I was... are we just getting to this now? There's no lungs in in bugs. That's correct. This is incredible. Uh, like some, it... okay. It depends. Some uh, insects, no, they do not have lungs. Uh, some other arthropods have gills, 
And so, like spiders and, and other arachnids, their quote-unquote lungs are adapted from gills. Um, it's very complicated. Uh, again, invertebrate stuff, not as familiar with their anatomy and their like particular evolutionary history of, of different body parts like that. Uh, but I would assume in things like uh, bivalves that have gills that are, you know, pre pretty integral to their digestive tract as well, that they also come from this layer of cells. From this point, the, these three different cell layers develop into whatever organs they're, they are bound to become. And they mostly grow to the size and shape that they are at birth or hatching from their egg. And... If you ever look up anything about developmental biology, you'll very quickly find comparisons of different embryos of different vertebrate groups. And you'll very quickly hear, and I'm, Fia, I'm sure you heard this in like intro biology, yeah. uh, that's uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which is the only phrase I've ever heard the word recapitulate in. Um, <laughs> Basic, yeah, it sounds fake. It does sound fake. Uh, and I even, just out of curiosity, because again, I've never heard it in any other context. I'm like, is this a real word or is this a word that somebody just made up? Um, which at the end of the day, all words are just words somebody made up. But uh, I know capitulate. I've heard that word, but recapitulate. Yeah. So, uh, and it is a real word that has other uses, but none that I would ever use like in conversation. Anyway, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Basically, that means that the stages of life of an organism mimics its evolutionary history. That it was, it was made famous by uh, a very, very famous German scientist named Ernst Haeckel in the mid-1800s. He was also very famous for being uh, super into eugenics. Uh, Re-listen to the very beginning of this podcast, uh, where it's kind of hard <laughs> to find a prominent... You know, 1800 scientist who was not. Uh, but yeah, at this time, the great chain of being was still very much the norm, where man was sort of the most advanced animal, and that there was a chain of superiority that led to man being at the top. Um, Heckel meant for this phrase to sort of mean that the steps of human embryonic development go through the adult stages of inferior life forms, such as fish and salamanders, which if you look at human embryos, it that kind of holds up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Human embryos at different steps in their development have gill slots. They have a tail well past the, the legs, which clearly we don't have when we're born for the most part. Um, Which is a shame. Yeah, I really wish that we had prehensile tails, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so at, at first glance, it does kind of hold up, but it's complicated to say like, no, that, that doesn't really uh, make all that much sense. Uh, these days, we know that that's not really the case, but it's... All of these different embryos look similar because of their shared ancestry. So if you look at sort of the early to mid stages uh, of before you get like a recognizable like fetus of like uh, a human or a, a lizard or a cow or something, they all look really, really similar. 
like you you'd be hard pressed to tell if that one's a human and that one is a turtle or something uh some of the ones that don't grow limbs it's a little easier to tell um but yeah it's it's really difficult and they all look similar because we're all related is really what mm-hmm. it comes down to uh and the, the shape of these embryos is actually under a really large amount of selection pressure because so many species that don't, especially in species that don't care for their young, those babies need to be as ready and well adapted as possible straight out the egg. Uh, and at various points in all of our evolutionary histories, that has been the case where, where our, you know, whatever group of animals we were in the past didn't have parental care at some point in the past. Okay. So now, at this point, we have hatched from our egg and or emerged from our mother. What happens now in ontogeny? In, a, in most species, uh, across the entire animal kingdom, newborns look absolutely nothing like their parents. And this might surprise you because, yeah, really? you know, like human babies... Yeah, they look kind of funky. They have really big heads, really big eyes, but they look more or less like a human. It makes a lot more sense when you think of that invertebrates are the vast majority of animals on the planet. Mm -hmm. And especially insects are also the vast majority of animals on the planet. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So when you think of uh, Basically, anything that's not a vertebrate, especially an amniovertebrate, so the ones that lay hard-shelled eggs, so not uh, frogs and salamanders or fish, uh, most of them go through some kind of metamorphosis. Uh, Imagine, you know, when I was in third grade science class, we had uh, monarch butterfly caterpillars that we raised, and it went from caterpillar to its cocoon to the butterfly adult. We, again, we could have an entire episode about metamorphosis and the various differences uh, that there are in all the different types of metamorphosis that different animals go through. But that's not this episode, so we'll just be cruising through. Uh, In insects, there are generally two types of metamorphosis. There's hollow metaboly, uh, which is the kind that you're thinking of. This is your caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly, or your caterpie to your metapod to your butterfree, for my Pokemon fans out there. (laughs) Uh, That is most insects. That is uh, beetles, moths and butterflies, flies, ants, bees, and wasps. Most insects have that three stages. Uh, There's hemimetaboly, which is when they basically just skip the cocoon phase. So they have their larvae at some point where it just gets to its last shed of its exoskeleton. And from that shed, the adult emerges. Uh, Those are things like true bugs, which famously are cicadas. If you found the cicada shed in the summer anytime, um, that's why there's the big hole in the back. It's because that's where the adult emerged with its wings and then flew away. Uh, Grasshoppers, mantises, dragonflies, roaches, and termites do this as well, where they just don't do the cocoon or any pupa phase in the middle. Uh, A couple of really early branching insect groups, uh, like silverfish, have a metaboly, which means that they just don't do pretty much any metamorphosis. They come out from the egg, basically just tiny adults. Do you guys get silverfish in, in the north? 
I've seen them, but they're very few and far between. I like in my house that I've been in for a couple months now. I haven't seen any. It's like a thing here. Like yeah, I I didn't know what they were at first, and I was like, Ugh, what are yeah. these? Why are they yeah, the in my house? <laughs> yeah, the only reason I really would recognize one is because they are evolutionarily kind of important because they're. Mm. The, one of the earliest branching groups of insects. So they're insects, but they don't have wings, which is very weird. And it's not like they lost them, they just never got them. Um, very interesting group of bugs. Uh, in, no, yeah, them, yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they were infesting my house, I also probably wouldn't think they were very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. Yeah, in... Many marine invertebrates, their eggs basically are fertilized, like, out in the open in the water. Like, the males and females will each just, like, shoot a bunch of sperm and egg into the water and hope it works. Um, And so they don't really, you know, unlike a butterfly where they, like, lay their eggs in a specific spot, that's kind of hard for a lot of, you know, especially benthic, sessile marine invertebrates to do because they can't walk to each other. And mate, that's the only choice they have, is to just you know, spray it out there and hope for the best. Um, <laughs> and so uh, the egg develops and then hatches as part of the free-floating plankton. Um, that's how a lot of crustaceans do it. Uh, and I think a lot of bivalves do that as well. Because, like yeah. I said, they, they don't really move. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll talk about, real quick... Some of the decapods, which are the, the crabs and lobsters and stuff, and then Fia uh, can talk a little bit about uh, some some bivalve things. But cool. decapods, uh, their their larvae do something similar to the hemimetabolous insects, where they don't really they don't have like a cocoon stage, um, but their larvae sort of add something new every time they shed their exoskeleton. They basically like add like a new set of swimming legs, which are like all the little things underneath the lobster tail, all the little legs. Um, they'll add like a couple new pairs of those per shed or something like that. So it's very much not like the radical metamorphosis that you think of, like a caterpillar to a butterf- butterfly, um, mm-hmm. but something a little more gradual and less obvious that they still call a metamorphosis for some reason. Not really sure. Um but I know it's often called metamorphosis in bivalves, too, so I'm curious what they do. So go ahead, Fia. Yeah, so, um, like, the general um, cycle happens, you know, the same way with egg sperm thrown in the air. It's a party. Uh, not in the air, in the water. <laughs> um, <laughs> but mix around, and then, like, within a day or so, the eggs become fertilized. And um, then most bivalves will move to a villager stage, which basically is just tiny larvae. It's just when they're kind of like in this developmental phase, free floating around um, in the water column, and they'll drift around wherever the tides pretty much take them um, mm-hmm. for can be days, weeks, months. It depends on the species. And then, um, you know, at that time, they're they're continuing their their development, um, and then they eventually will turn into tiny little uh, miniature 
bivalve of that species. So like for instance, scallops, they'll just be tiny little scallops. And um, that terminology, they call those spat um, for all the bivalves. It's just like, okay. um, just tiny, tiny babies. And then those spat are where they'll settle um, onto some substrate and attach and then they'll grow into the fully matured adult form. Right, and they they settle because they start growing their shell, right? Um, there's a, it's complicated, I would okay. say. Um, I think there are, there's a lot of stuff we don't know about bivalves. Um, and so their their cues to actually um, like fall to uh, the benthos can vary based on species, based on environment. Um, okay. I don't know that it's just particularly they have shell now. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I know in in some of the decapods, you know, that's sort of when they at least the ones that do live on the seafloor for ones like krill that mm -hmm. are just sort of free floating in the water as well. They, mm -hmm. their, their shell gets mineralized or their, their exoskeleton starts to get a little thicker. Uh, and right. they, Got that it. just like increase in density is what causes them to then start developing faster as they're crashing toward the seafloor. Um, cool. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, in some other mollusks like cephalopods, uh, squid and octopus don't, really do a metamorphosis they hatch as basically kind of small adults but just with relatively shorter arms um and as with most things with cephalopods pretty much all the information i could find was about squids and octopus i couldn't really find much about cuttlefish or uh the different nautilus the the externally shelled ones um although i saw it implied that they do that those two groups do have some kind of metamorphosis, but I didn't really see it described anywhere. Also, apparently, I learned we've never found Nautilus eggs in the wild. Mm. Ever. Um, the classic, they're where do eels go to breed? Exactly. Uh, that's another very famous one, is we don't know really where or how eels reproduce. I um, think they do now, though. I did see that, actually. That happened, like, relatively late yeah. in the year. Yeah. Like, yeah, like pretty recently a couple year. months ago yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah nautilus we've seen them do it in uh in captivity but you never know if that's really how it works in nature when it's captive um but yeah fun fact about them uh lastly for the invertebrates uh echinoderms uh despite the adults being very strange and having radial symmetry that's you know think of like a, a five-sided starfish most good proper animals are symmetrical one way if you think of yourself you have a left side and a right side and they're pretty much the same um that's the case in most uh you know there's a whole group bilateria that is most animals um these guys are technically included in that and you can actually see that in their larvae their larvae are bilaterally symmetrical just one way through the middle uh, they go through a metamorphosis where the left-hand side of the larva becomes the side that faces the ground. So on a starfish, that'd be the side with all the little suckers and feet and stuff, and that uh, has their mouth. 
the right side of the larva becomes the side that faces upward. And it's during this metamorphosis that they develop their weird five-way symmetry that echinoderms are famous for. Very strange. We have kind of no idea why this group in particular decided to just be symmetrical five ways instead of the normal one way. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Uh, but we can see very clearly by looking at their larvae that they didn't used to be that way. All right. Now on to the vertebrates. Uh, fish. Very wildly, as you could expect for the most diverse group of vertebrates. Uh, sharks basically come out the womb or out the egg because there are quite a lot of sharks that are uh, that have live birth. They come out basically looking like sharks. Same thing yeah. with the uh, rays and skates and some of their relatives. Um, they might have slightly different proportions, but by and large, they just look like a shark. Bony fish, so that is most fish you're thinking of, um, sometimes do this too. In some of them, they look more or less just like an adult. Um, however, most of them have uh, a somewhat different larval stage that are, you'll often hear called fry. Um, at this first stage, they're basically just tiny little guys that are just like sort of vaguely fish or eel shaped that have a big old yolk sac coming off like the, the bottom side, like where their stomach would be. And they can sort of swim around, but not really. And then they absorb the yolk sac and can swim better. At this point, they're all filter feeders, regardless of what they end up eating later in life. So even like, uh, like barracuda or, uh, other bait, like tuna, stuff like that, that eat bigger fish when they're adults. They all start out as filter feeders. Um, then after that, a little while, they start to resemble their adult forms. This is co often called a metamorphosis, but it's like no, it's not even comparable to what a lot of insects do. So I don't know why we don't have a separate term for it, but that's just me. Uh, amphibians are also very famous alongside insects for uh, their metamorphosis. Uh, famously in frogs, which hatches tadpoles. We, we've all seen them, I presume. Uh, that was something else we did in, like, early biology, or, like, early, uh, like, elementary school, is we watched some, some tadpoles turn into frogs. Um, these tadpoles eat plants. They don't, they have a mouth, but they don't fully have jaws, which is weird. Uh, yeah. after, after some time, the tadpoles grow... Uh, legs first and then arms. They grow lungs. Their gut changes from a, a really long gut for processing plant material into a shorter one for eating animal material because to my knowledge all, all adult frogs are carnivorous. Um, if you are curious why you want a long gut for eating plants, uh, see last episode. Uh, like I said, their, their lower jaw fully forms at this point. Their nervous system and their sensory system has to totally change to be able to see and hear in the air instead of just in water, which, like, physics-wise works very differently. Uh, their skin becomes th thicker, especially in the case of, like, toads. Uh, they lose their tail, except for one species. There's one species of frogs that keep their tail as an adult. Um, and then, basically, at that point, they use the breakdown of that tail... And they recycle those materials to basically turbocharge uh, the growth of their legs. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, salamanders, as you can probably guess, because they're both amphibians. Similar-ish story. 
Um, but salamanders can vary uh, a lot more from species to species than frogs tend to from species to species. Um, some just hatch into many adults. Uh, this is pretty much only the case for like the really terrestrial groups of uh, salamanders, though. Mostly they hatch as tadpoles that look sort of like a more slender version of a frog tadpole. Um, and the main difference is that they have external gills. Some salamanders are very famous for keeping those external gills when they become adults. Uh, things like axolotls, for example. Uh, the salamanders, their legs grow in sort of over a longer time period than frogs generally do, but the rest of the changes happen pretty quickly, uh, like with frogs. Most salamander tadpoles, though, are carnivorous, so they don't need to do all the gut changes, really, like frogs do. Um, and then at this point, they basically just look like adult salamanders with gills, and then they lose the gills and come up onto land if that is where the adults live. If the adults live in water, sometimes they keep the gills, sometimes they get rid of them, and then they just breathe through their skin. Um, salamanders, in particular, are very well known for being adaptable, even on like the individual level, though, where in some cases, even in the same species... Some individuals will keep their external gills, and some individuals will get rid of them. But they'll all be sexually mature and still be able to reproduce. Salamanders are weird like that. Uh, in some cases, that's an individual thing. Uh, but in some cases, like in axolotls, it's the whole species. You know, all axolotls, like, need to keep their external gills in order to breathe and, and function at all. Uh, the last group of, of amphibians is a much lesser-known group called Sicilians, which basically look like somewhat bigger earthworms. Very weird group. Um, they mostly metamorphose inside the egg, or uh, inside the mother, because most of them actually give life birth. Uh, but they go through the similar stages, except for the growing limbs part, because uh, as adults, they don't have limbs. Hmm. All right. On to the cool stuff. Amniotes. Uh, amniotes, so these are things that are reptiles and birds and mammals. Uh, none of them go under or uh, undergo any kind of metamorphosis at all. When they hatch, they are varying degrees of fully formed, but they don't go through any kind of metamorphosis. When they're immediately post-hatching or post-birth, how the animal looks is mostly dependent on whether or not their parents take care of them. In species with high parental care, like many mammals and birds, uh, the babies look very different than the adults. Uh, if you sort of think of like the pink featherless baby birds compared to the adult bird, or like a hairless little pink tiny baby mouse or something, um, very different from the adults. We don't call this metamorphosis, though. Even in some cases like uh, marsupials, where they don't even have back legs yet when they're technically born. Uh, really? Yeah. So in, for example, like kangaroos, they don't have back legs at all when they're born. They're born very underdeveloped. They have these little, just little tiny arms to be able to crawl up the mom into the pouch because they do all of that themselves. They get into the pouch by themselves. The mom doesn't help. Um, mm. Yeah. Damn. Yep. So they just like climb the mountain up. With just their arms. Climb the mountain. Yep, up into the mom's pouch, where they then sit for a couple months. Uh, but yeah, metamorphosis includes a lot of things that I think maybe it shouldn't, and then doesn't include some things that might make sense. 
Anyway. Um, but in some species with very low parental care, uh, they come out looking much more similar to the adults, like in uh, many snakes or lizards. But here, I think, is a really good place to talk about something I've been skirting around a little bit as we've been talking about this. Uh, and that's how growth kind of works and how we talk about growth. Broadly speaking, so once you're hatched, there's sort of two different ways that we talk about growth patterns. There's allometric and isometric. Isometric is basically, if you've ever imported a picture into PowerPoint or Photoshop or something, and you grab the corner and scale it up, where it keeps the same like ratios and everything, that's isometric mm -hmm. growth, where you just scale up. That happens almost never. <laughs> um, it's pretty much only seen in some a handful of fish uh, and also amphibians. After they metamorphose, they basically just scale up. Uh, if a frog immediately post-metamorphosis, if its legs are half its body length, when it's at its maximum size, they will still be half its body length. That's how it works for frogs and, and mostly salamanders do. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everything else goes through allometric growth, which is when different parts of the body grow at different rates. And this kind of makes sense. This is what inherently you kind of think of when you think of a baby human. Their heads are gigantic, and their arms and legs are little teeny tiny. And then as they get older, their head doesn't grow all that much, but their arms and legs get very long very quickly. Uh... This is the case for basically all amniotes. Like, uh, for example, if you took, like, even a baby snake and just sort of scaled it up to adult length, it would be very skinny compared to an adult. So they get proportionally thicker faster than they get longer, if that makes sense. Uh, another really good example is a baby horse. How they have these very long, very spindly legs uh, proportionately relative to adults. Uh, and it can even be the case in uh, individual body parts do it sort of differently. So, uh, for example, the human heart grows isometrically. So the heart just scales up. It, it grows at sort of the same rate the whole time, whereas the rest of the body grows at different rates. Uh, or, for example, fiddler crabs, which are, um, if you've ever seen a, a crab where it has one gigantic claw, and one smaller claw. Those are fiddler crabs. Uh, that's, uh, you know, different growth rates where it's like the small claw grows isometrically, just sort of scaled up over time, but then the big claw grows real, real, real fast to be able to get so big. In uh, a, a lot of times, this di these differences in growth rates are kind of a survival tactic based on the needs of the species. So in, again, for example, just because that's what we're, we're talking about babies, human babies a lot this episode, considering we were talking about pregnancy earlier. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's like I knew something. I know. Uh, human babies are famously useless uh, because they can afford to be because they're no, they can mooch off their parents. Uh, they know that their parents, I mean, they, they don't know, but you, you know what I mean. Their parents will carry them everywhere. 
So this allows for, in baby humans, the limbs to be very underdeveloped at birth. They don't need to be walking around as soon as they are born. Uh, while the brain, which is, especially in humans, extra important, is proportionally much, much bigger. In horses, on the other hand, they need those proportionately long limbs relative to uh, their adults uh, to be able to keep up with the herd basically as soon as they're born. Because if, if the baby horse can't start walking and keep up with its mom day one, it's going to die. So yeah. these different growth rates and what parts are, are uh, you know, disproportionate compared to the adults uh, at birth are often tailored to be that way for, you know, evolution reasons, as everything kind of is. Mm -hmm. uh, and this can even make a little more sense uh, uh, in animals with parental care, because, you know, depending on the, how your parent cares for you, you can sort of invest in some things more heavily than others, other, you know, different body parts. Um, but it also can make sense for different reasons for those without parental care. Uh, for example, you don't want to be competing with, for resources with your parents because they will always outcompete you. You don't want to be shaped to do the same job and eat the same stuff as your parent if your parent isn't supplying you with food. Uh, a really good example of this is Komodo dragons, where the babies will live in trees for like two years. Uh, the first two years of their life, they spend the entire time in trees because if they try to eat the same stuff as their parents, their parents will eat all the stuff, they will get no food, and will probably be eaten by the parents. So they are shaped slightly differently. They're a lot more slender uh, to be able to get up in trees and be able to move around in trees and catch things in that environment so that they're not competing with their uh, and lastly, before we get into some paleontology stuff here, which the paleontology section, spoilers, is uh, relatively short. Um, <laughs> one, what, what happens when we, what is adulthood? You know, we talk about from fertilization to you are an adult. What even is adulthood? As all of us are current kind of trying to still figure out. Uh, what is yeah. adulting? Uh, uh, I, I would, I would imagine. species, but... Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Like, I'm trying to think of what, um, like, biologically it would be. Like, is sexual maturity, yeah. like, the, the benchmark of adulthood, if you were to ask a biologist? Like, That's what I would say. Like, to be, to be clear, like, ask a biologist and not ask, like, a reasonable person. Right. So, that depends. Because, technically, so take humans, for example. Humans can reproduce at the age of, like... 14 to 15. You know, biologically speaking, we can reproduce that young. We probably shouldn't. Um, but biologically, we can. So, Well, I mean, if you think about the lifespan of how we used to... Oh, like, yeah, totally. It makes sense that, yeah, at 14 you are having children, but you were only living till, like, maybe 30 Right, yeah. Um, but if you think of, uh, especially in the case of boys, because they, you know, grow later into life than, than you know, uh, females do, uh, male humans don't stop growing until they're in their early 20s. And so 
which one do you consider an adult Mm. when they stop growing or when they're actually able to reproduce? Are you going to tell us? No, it's up. It's, it depends a lot for which group you're looking at in particular with vertebrates. I think it's a little more clear cut, especially I'm a little biased because you can't see if something can reproduce in the fossil record, Uh, but you can tell when (laughs) it stopped growing. Um, So with vertebrates, we actually have growth plates at the end of our long bones. So these are uh, basically the bones in your limbs. Uh, So like your your, um, radius and ulna in your forearm, your humerus in your upper arm, your uh, femur in your sort of thigh, and then your tibia and fibula in your shin. They have a little plate of bone at either end of them that that area is sort of where it grows longer from and where growth hormone stimulates that growth. And when you're getting toward the end of your growing time um, in, again, for humans, uh, in males, that is in your late teens to early 20s. For females, it's a little earlier than that. Those growth plates fuse to the end of the bone and we can see that and that is when you stop growing and when you are basically a fully mature adult um again whether or not you can reproduce when that happens varies from some species some species stop growing before they can reproduce some species can reproduce before they stop growing it kind of depends i'm a little bit surprised there's some species that like it would they'd be able to reproduce later than that or like they wouldn't be able to reproduce until later than that because like just evolutionarily like you would think you would think you know, you'd want you want to be able to do that so- as soon as possible and i would say that they are the vast minority <laughs> the ones that can do it. i'm thinking okay. of like the incredibly long-lived species you know things like some tortoises maybe even some like sharks and things like the really deep ones that can live for like several hundred years mm-hmm. for them doesn't really matter if they have to wait a couple extra years right uh with also with vertebrates, and this is also true of a lot of invertebrates like bivalves, where uh, you can see visible growth rings on the various hard parts that they have. For humans, you see it a lot, particularly in the long bones, again, th- those limb bones. In bivalves, you see the rings on their shells, and uh, you read them sort of like a tree ring. So on a bivalve, you can pick it up and see the rings. Unfortunately, for vertebrates, you have to cut the bones open to be able to see the rings. Um, But uh, they basically, like I said, work like tree rings, where they start from the middle and build out. And you can see that uh, they grow, the rings are closer together the faster you are growing, and then farther apart uh, when you start to slow down your growth. And just like you would expect in a tree. At the center of a bone, the rings are real, real close together and then get farther apart uh, later in life. Uh, And then also in here, a real quick note, because this is always a myth that I like dispelling. You'll often hear that a lot of reptiles uh, never stop growing. That is technically true, but not true. What do you mean? So if you have a crocodile, for example... If you were to care for it forever and, uh, you know, give it everything it needs, as much space as it would need, um, it's not like it would grow to 50 feet long if it lived long enough. Um, That just means that, like, every time they sort of shed their skin, that's a lot clearer for a snake, which, like, shed their skin all at once than, like, a crocodile. But um, 
like they might grow like a quarter of an inch per year maybe when they're 30 years old unlike something like a human which like we hit a point and then we stop so they don't technically stop but it, it doesn't mean that you're gonna if it lives long enough it's gonna be you know 50 feet long that's not really how that works but that's often how it's portrayed in uh you know, different movies and, and different pieces of media like that, where it's like, oh, this ancient crocodile is like 400 years old and it's 50 feet long. There's a lot of sci-fi movies that do that kind of thing. Um, but that's not true. That's not how that works. Anywho, that is uh, an incredibly brief look, even though we're at over an hour, um, <laughs> at, from fertilization until you are at a mature adult. However, this is a paleontology podcast. Uh, we've not really talked about paleontology all that much. So, how do we talk about and learn about ontogeny in paleontology? So, when we're looking at animals that are around today, we have the benefit of being able to watch one for its whole life. Even if, you know, for example, we don't know where eels go when they reproduce or we've never found nautilus eggs in the wild, we can take them and breed them in captivity. There are lots of species that we can't breed in captivity, but for the most part, we can watch something happen its entire life and study how that goes every single step of the way. With fossils, we can't do that. And so oftentimes, it is really hard to tell if you're looking at a handful of different species or the same species at various points throughout the the maturity of that species. Uh, especially for species that have that allometric growth where different parts of the body grow at different rates. And so mm. this is famously true for dinosaurs in particular. And they're one of the hardest ones to study because we don't have any... Like, yeah, we do have dinosaurs around today in birds. But they don't grow or do the same things as a Tyrannosaurus or a big sauropod or a Triceratops. They just function very differently. And so they're not always the best example to look at for this kind of thing. Um, and so if you remember very long ago, about an hour to the <laughs> beginning of this episode, I mentioned that there was some controversy recently over some, dinosaur that may or may not be a juvenile of another. So the potential genus Nanotyrannus is proposed is a is a proposed species of Tyrannosaurid dinosaur, so in the same family as Tyrannosaurus. And it's found at the same at the same time and in the same places as Tyrannosaurus rex. But Nanotyrannus is about all the specimens that have been found are about as tall as a human, not the 15 or so feet tall of an adult T-Rex. So much smaller. And there's also some very key differences between their morphology as well. Nanotyrannus has a much shallower skull. Tyrannosaurus has a very deep skull that has these huge, powerful jaw muscles for just, you know, chomping on drumsticks all day. Um, they have proportionally much longer arms and legs, 
a couple other different, just like proportionally weird features. And so how would one tell if this were a different species or if this was, uh, in fact, a juvenile of Tyrannosaurus? First, we look at the histology, which is basically taking slices of the bones and looking at them under a microscope uh, to look at those rings, or uh, potentially you can also do this to look for any cancers or things. That's also relatively uh, interesting to things to look for in paleontology, too. Because uh, if it's a bone cancer, that gets preserved in the bones. But uh, when you're talking about ontology, you're really looking for those growth rings. And so different people have argued different things about the, the handful of bones that have been looked at for this proposed nanotyrannus. Um, and based on what I mentioned earlier, where uh, the, the rings would start off real close together and then get farther apart as it gets more mature, it looks like there is some slowing down of the growth, which would lead people to believe that these individuals are almost fully grown. Which means that this might be its own unique species. Hmm. However, maybe not. You also have to look at the ones that we know for sure are Tyrannosaurus rex, which means adults, and look at their bones and see what their growth pattern is like. So if you look at uh, T-Rex growth rings under a microscope, apparently Tyrannosaurus rex grew quite weird, where it grew real fast at first, then slowed down for a while, and then had an enormous growth spurt probably around the time it reached sexual maturity to be able to compete for mates and then also for females to not be killed during mating. Uh, <laughs> uh, and in fact, females typically in Tyrannosaurus were bigger than the males. Um, so basically they had this sort of not quite um, logarithmic where it's just like real fast and then levels out. It's real fast, then levels out for a bit and then gets real fast, and then levels out again. And so, because of this weird way that we know Tyrannosaurus rex grew, these very well could fit within that first sort of plateau. Again, these are all the complicated things. You can't just look at a thing and know how old it was necessarily. Um, with, with things that we don't have good analogs of today. With fossil horses, that's much easier because we have horses today. Right. We know what to look for. Uh, also, some things that you can use to help are just the general ecology of the area. For example, in every other environment that has g these giant Tyrannosaurus rex, or, or Tyrannosaurus relatives, for example... Um, things like Gorgosaurus, Albertosaurus, that are somewhat closely related, similar size to Tyrannosaurus rex, too. Um, in their environments, there are no predators that are in this kind of medium-sized range that Nanotyrannus would fit. Instead, the juveniles of those species fill that medium-predator niche. That's how their ecology works. And so it would be fairly unusual for this to be the one environment that does have a medium predator like this. Hmm. And so 
Uh, also, from what I understand, the juveniles that we know are juveniles of those other species also have some of the similar weird morphology, like longer legs, shallower skulls, stuff like that, that we see in Nanotyrannus. So if it's similar in those, and those are still juveniles of that bigger species, that all of that kind of leads me to believe that Nanotyrannus is a juvenile T-Rex. But I, it's dinosaurs and I don't really care. I don't really have a horse in this race, so... <laughs> um, all of this to say, it can be real hard. Particularly for things that we don't have today. Um, there are lots of other similar examples of these debates all throughout the dinosaur family tree. Um, even with one that, again, is such a famous name, you might think we understand it really well, but Triceratops. There's been talk that another, uh, that, that Triceratops is sort of the young adult stage, and that there's another, what we call a different species, Taurosaurus, that lives in the same environments at the same times, that is a little bit bigger, that is, people have proposed, is the adult. The, the fully grown adult. Um... That one, I again, I don't particularly care which one's correct. Uh, I think it's been leaned toward that they're separate, but who knows. Um, the, these are the kinds of ongoing debates that we have in paleontology. Um, and these are just with vertebrates, which we understand quite well. Uh, I don't even want to know what kinds of funky stuff's going on with all the invertebrates that metamorphose and things. Uh, for example, in the fossil record, if you find a caterpillar and a butterfly in the same environment as fossils, you have absolutely no idea whether that caterpillar goes to that butterfly. They could be the same, they could be totally different species. So, uh, and then all, some different things like in bivalves. Bivalves have been I don't want to say static evolutionarily, but the bivalves have been relatively unchanged for a very long time evolutionarily. So those are relatively easier to tell. Um, but paleontology, particularly when we're talking about variation within a species, gets very muddy. Which is very hard to explain to people that that doesn't necessarily mean paleontology is all junk. Uh <laughs> But yeah, so that is yeah. I'm doing my best. <laughs> uh, but that's all I've got about ontogeny and growing up. Um, again, I could go on and on all about this, but we are definitely uh, a bit over where we try to shoot for for episodes. But um, do you all have any last lingering questions about getting old? I do not. I don't think so. Cool beans. This has been episode 128 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. Quick correction from earlier. Um, for Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square didn't happen on January 10th. That's when China lifted the martial law it imposed on Tiananmen Square um, like six months earlier. Um, and I know that there were some people that were worried about that. So there sure were. I appreciate you guys hanging around. Yeah, I know I was. Um, but <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll see all of you guys in two weeks. Take care, everybody.
This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 